Welcome back to the Integral Stage sub-series called Love the System. I'm Layman Pascal, and today I want to frame this around what I've been calling in my mind Ontario Depth Adaptation, which is obviously not just about Ontario, Canada, but about starting to think more bioregionally and in a more embodied way about developmental, transformational, liminal, and meta-integrative realities. By foregrounding the general political and geographic region, which Jason Medland and I share, we're also foregrounding the need for everyone to place their actual social and ecological life world and its needs at the center of the mandala of their thinking. I think we need to be real inhabitants again. And the overriding questions for me in this area are, how do we create tighter alliances between practical local projects on the one hand and big picture, big history, transpluralistic developmental thinking on the other? How do we set up relationships and networks and projects that are simultaneously useful under normal conditions and abnormal disruption conditions? How do we do this in ways that don't just degenerate over time? And what kind of energy and attitude and efforts are necessary in our individual body-brain units to create and sustain and grow these systems? So that's my plug for the Ontario Depth Adaptation Framing. And from out of that, we're going to be weaving a discussion today back and forth, I think, between scientifically informed occultism, the needs and problems of the liminal web communities, and the structural principles by which organizations and procedures and the spirit of groups in general either function or self-sabotage. Hi, Jason. Hi, Lyon. How are you doing today? Good. Great to see you. Let's start with stone. Uh, you know, I, I, people probably know that I think the meta crisis in the emerging epoch requires us to privilege a kind of shamanic style in spirituality. And part of that for me is a renewed appreciation of elemental powers, right? Whether it's campfire discourse or Wim Hof in the ice or sunlight regulating our sleep cycles, we have a wealth of socio neurobiological data to back up this idea that there's an intelligent self-regulatory function for deeper relationships with the elements of the world. Now, the earthy, weighty element of stone makes me personally think about how difficult a concept hardness is to get right. You know, having a hard heart and not being too soft or flexible or sensitive was part of the survival ethics and wisdom instructions of many ancient cultures. But hardness also risks sabotaging some of the very things that make life rich and worth living, the soft delicacy of ongoing development. So, of course, culturally, we want to be robust without being contracted and solidly efficient without being indifferent. But Stone also makes me think of Nietzsche's constant desire to compress philosophy, to make it aphoristic and return it to the sort of complex compactness uh, of people who are carving their thoughts into bronze or stone, an almost Gurdjieffian impulse to be denser and extend over longer ranges of time. So that ramble is all what comes into my mind when I think of stone. What about you? What is the book of stone, the Sefer Ibn, and what's being implied by invoking the elemental quality of stoniness here? Uh, Sefer Ben. So where to start? So I guess it started with a Vox Verba experience uh, like 20, 25 years ago. So heroic uh, doses of psilocybin had like these intense body shakes started to see everything in mosaic rather than the usual um, flowing color like uh, like the little bits of the TV where you see those fairly commonly with Kibenthes and out of nowhere there was just like this flash triangular flash of lightning accompanied by the words uh, he appeared to me in uh, flash and thunder how I am but a stone before him 
at that point, um, I had been involved with a group called uh, the Ancient Builders of the North, or the APN, or Eben, if you translate that into Hebrew, um, that comes out of the work of Paul Foster Case. So going through an experience like that, I was like, okay, what am I doing with this? Those are the kind of things you can get lost in a rabbit hole kind of very, very quickly. And uh, who needs another fucking messiah? Like, it's not really useful stuff. So a big chunk of that, uh, that started a deeper journey for me into uh, Western history traditions. So it was a little bit after that that I started pursuing um, traditional Freemasonry after the, the more hermetic Freemasonic stuff I was involved with, shamanic stuff before that. Um, and the idea of the Book of Stone was what of the human experience is worthy of being written in stone? At the same time, recognizing there's an aspect of permanence to it, but it is not absolutely permanent. Even stone is going to disappear. Uh, the emphasis will crumble over time. So I'm kind of looking at what are the most kind of stable relationship pat patterns, cognitive patterns that we can build to actually have like something resembling a civil society that's stable and sustainable. So that's the, the basic impetus of where all that came out of. How much of that is a um, response to the perception that large segments of our current society have maybe become too fluid, too unstructured, not weighty enough? I think there's uh, a lot of that. Like there's, with the push of advertising in the early 20th century, that really is like pushing people down into the limbic system. And if you're sitting in your limbic system, the prefrontal cortex is cut off and you kind of lose all the aspect of that complexity. And then you've got that tied up within uh, narrative and mimetic system one, two learning, and then or system one learning, and then system two learning, which is like systems and process and methodologies. Yeah, sorry, I'll let you direct a little bit more because uh, going to go off into orthodoxy and all kinds of other things. Uh, there's a lot to, to compact there. I think part of that drive to compress things is to make things that will withstand the test of time. Some of the aspect of that is like, here's an aphorism or something like that. It's not just meant to be read and adopted. You're meant to dig into it. And if it's written correctly, I think, or within esoteric architecture or archetypal language, it is going to continue un to unpack like a fractal. So I think that's part of the reason for doing that kind of algorithmic compression. And it's also uh, to increase transmissibility over time. If you've got a big, long text of a million words, how many people are going to go through that? Um, how many people are going to wait all the way through? Uh, how many copies are going to be available? All kinds of things like that. If it's paper, it's going to be very impermanent. Whereas if you are able to distill really complex ideas into a couple of small phrases, yes, it might require some unpacking and some knowledge. But again, that un unpacking process is part of the learning process, a part of engaging and uh, integrating all that as you're kind of learning what these things are and unpacking, figuring out how it fits together. So part of that is building, you know, the idea of evolution and longevity into the systems we're setting up. But part of that is uh, looking into ourselves for the things which are worth being written in stone. What are those things? Where do we, what do we check in ourselves to try to find the things that ought to be more permanent? Through testing, 
So does this is one of the contentions I have with Peterson's reading of Nietzsche, where he's like, you can't just wipe everything and start over. And that's his interpretation of uh, what Nietzsche's saying. I read Nietzsche as like 18th century European shamanism. And the whole idea of tearing these things down is to get into the foundations, get into the substructure of the systems and to learn how they actually function and work and then to rebuild the edifice from that. So that process of going down in there, what you, you're not creating anything new. There's nothing new under the sun. There's no brand new reinvention, but what you are doing is familiarizing yourself with that whole long arc from the developmental uh, basis all the way up through the chain of development and trying to understand what's actually going on and rebuilding and reinvigorating. So I think like that's how I read Nietzsche in that context, nice. rather than it's just a nihilistic wiping away of everything. You're getting down to the fundamental principles, rebuilding back up from base principles and having, having the lineage thing, I think is in some aspect is important, whether or not it's, specific lineage like Freemasonry, we have a broader Western mystery tradition where there's a, a consistent or fairly consistent set of tools across those different domains. The, part of it is understanding that complexity from paleolithic shamanic consciousness up to where we are with contemporary modern neuropsychology and physiology and trying to close that Ouroboros from the paleolithic to the hypermodern. So the I mean, you just mentioned the Western mystery schools and that, you know, that long history between contemporary science and shamanism and also the Kabbalistic language around a concept like Seferibin uh, brings to mind the history of Western esoteric societies. And I've discussed this with some other people on this podcast, Alan Greenfield and Greg Kaminsky and the guys from Limited Hangout and some others. And it remains a bit strange to me that the people today who are looking to cultivate a new ethos of multidimensional developmental transrationality or the religion that isn't a religion, that they aren't paying more attention to the so-called occult fraternities, because these strike me as being intergenerational networks of scientific illuminists, you know, operating transculturally, integrating multiple big picture streams from different kinds of sages. They've adaptively inhabited different political and national and technological circumstances and found ways to either hide or make alliances with power structures and have been providing supplemental ongoing adult education that emphasizes developmental growth and wisdom. And obviously they haven't been all successful and they've struggled with corruption and authoritarianism and fads and bureaucracy like everybody else. But I'm curious why you think there hasn't been more curiosity about these organizations from the leading edge thought communities today? That I don't know. Um, I think there was a decoupling quite a few, gen- like maybe two, three generations ago. So especially guys who were Freemasons in like the seventies, maybe up until the eighties. There's a lot of younger guys who come in who are like, my granddad was one, but he never talked about anything. Mm. I think a lot of Freemasons, didn't really understand the boundary of what they could speak about versus what they couldn't speak about. So they spoke about nothing. And then you've got the long history of conspiracy theory and nonsense that's also behind that. And uh, there's a general change, I think, in terms of organizational and community commitment. So, I mean, within most organizations, you're looking at 20 to 25% are going to be active members, like active enough to be boots on the ground and actually do something to drive the organization forward. 
so you've got that challenge. And since like, let's look at 1980, I think there was 120,000 Freemasons in the province of Ontario. And I think our population at that point was like maybe three to four million. I think we're up in excess of like eight or nine million now. And there's 40,000 Freemasons in Ontario. When you step up into the Royal Arch, there's 4,000 Freemasons and it's just like diminishing as you go there. One of the encouraging things I've seen is that a lot of the younger people coming in actually understand Freemasonry as a mystery tradition, as opposed to just like an old boys club or a social club or whatever else. Yeah. Uh, there's a bit of a depth of understanding there. But at the same time, Freemasonry has been subject to the same institutional patterns and challenges that anywhere else has. I think over the course of history, it's done a relatively good job of maintaining its integrity. But no, perfection is not found this side of the grave. So, and what we're looking at within these organizations is institutional design patterns that we can take and use, and especially the aspect of lineage. Like I think there's pieces of uh, like psychotechnologies or software technology or information technologies. Lineage to me is like source control within managing code. If you if you're constantly compiling and just capturing what is the current state of things, you've lost this whole aspect of lineage and then being able to decompose problems from the past. That's one of the important aspects of lineage or source control or having what that uh, developmental history is. So you, if there is, you make a branch, something breaks, you can track back and try to figure out what and where, why things went wrong. The blockchain of mystery schools. <laughs> Not so much like the blockchain, yeah, that's hyper immutable like stone, but it's more so the developmental arc of history. So like taking that developmental arc of shamanic experience, tracing it up through cultural encodification, getting to the point where we either have mystery tradition or um, orthodoxy, set of rules, or sorry, set of, let me do it the other way, orthodoxy, mystery tradition, set of rules, set of tools. I mean, that again maps back to the system one, system two, left brain, right brain type of learning. You're either picking up stuff through narrative mimetics or you're picking up things through systems. The narrative mimetic piece, like the emotional limbic stuff, is not going away. It's part of our superstructure. But when we give it primacy, we cut off the capacity of everything else to actually function effectively. So recognizing that it's not disappearing, but we need to like not focus all the attention on that. When you put the lower complexity or lower order systems require more energy to run. When you go up through layers of abstraction, you're able to do more with less energy. It seems really important to me because obviously a lot of people are tuning into the, the Ian McGilchrist concept that contemporary brain science has something to tell us about the balances of civilization and that we may have been leaning in one direction a little more than is appropriate for the last several centuries or even longer. But what you don't get uh, in that story is the idea that there has been um, a multi-system education attempt ongoing throughout that period of time. And it seems like the we're, we're losing something if we think we're going to start a balanced brain civilization from scratch right now and not pay attention to the fact that people have been trying to do that all along. Yeah, that's a fundamental uh, lesson in software is like don't reinvent the wheel. Like understand what the existing patterns are. There are best practices for certain types of things. Maybe they can be improved and made more robust, but there is a baseline to work from there. So starting from scratch and reinventing the wheel is not uh, 
an effective use of energy and you're basically setting yourself up for failure because you've got more blind spots than you can imagine. At least if you're starting with a coherent design pattern from the beginning, you can understand some of the scope of the blind spots and you can start to tune those in and narrow or whatever you need to do from there. Um, but the thing of, like most mystery traditions work off the uh, idea of the object lesson. So you have the ritual, which is taking the candidate, putting them within the context of narrative. And they're uh, existing within a specific character's place within a narrative story and you're bringing them through that. And then you're tying in this system two stuff where you're getting the working tools, which is uh, also a fundamental piece of most uh, mystery traditions. It's some aspect of the object lesson where you take a physical thing in order to impart a intellectual or moral lesson from that physical thing, the square encompasses or um, the trowel. Like there's Freemasonry is uh, very rich with that, but that general principle of association is consistent throughout mystery traditions. So you've, I mean, you've touched on this already a little bit, right? There's blind spots that we'll miss if we're trying to reinvent the wheel. There's elements of ourselves that don't get informed by normal discursive information that require the object lesson of the ritual performance. But I'm going to ask kind of the same question in another way, because I think this is a strange point for people. What do we lose if we do our psychotechnologies and our spiritual practices without imaginally augmented ritual and lineages? Like if, because a lot of people have been doing that for decades now, which is they're just going to pick up some of these tools and try it on themselves. Uh, and that can be very productive for some people, not very productive for other people. But fundamentally, what what sort of insufficiencies is that likely to generate? Well, let's uh, change the subject domain for analog. So say somebody is trying to learn software architecture or programming. If you just go through and do a bunch of disparate exercises in different languages, you're not really seeing how things fit together. At the same time, if you just go to school, you take Java and that's everything you ever learn, you haven't really learned anything else as well. So there has to be the aspect of self-driven learning, of searching, engaging the approach network and looking at different things. But in order to integrate that effectively, you have to come back to some kind of framework or superstructure that you can augment and tune as you move along. I mean, that's back to another system one, system two thing. People who are thinking in narrative and mimetics, that's all story-based. Those worldviews are not amenable to change or upgrade. They're kind of fixed. If you change anything, you're changing the meaning of the whole narrative. Whereas if you're thinking in systems, you can change and upgrade individual components and how those things fit together and maybe rearrange, reorder. So it has that flexibility in terms of being able to modify and upgrade as time goes along. And so you have a chance in the developmental arc rather than just running around in circles. Again, if you're comfortable with it, I'd like to read out your formal withdrawal letter from Craft Freemasonry, and then we can discuss some of the issues that are involved. And I'm, I'm not so much interested in the vaccine passport mandates issue, but I think it reflects some general critiques that can be uh, used to interrogate systems generally and at sure. multidimensional. Yeah. So, all right. Yeah, I've got it here. My request for formal withdrawal from Craft Freemasonry. I can no longer continue in any association with the Grand Lodge of Ontario. I've long found the affiliation to be an embarrassment given the petty behavior that has been committed, condoned, or ignored. The state of the craft is an embarrassment to anyone who has taken their charges and obligations seriously. This is obvious to candidates and why many do not return. They clearly see the hollow sham it has become under people chasing gold braid and adulation. 
With the support and implementation of a vaccine passport, the Grand Lodge of Canada in the province of Ontario has completely wiped and flushed its intellectual and moral integrity. Freemasonry holds itself to be a moral science, but it is clear from the support of a vaccine passport, the Grand Lodge of Ontario has no interest in the methodology of science or genuine principles of morality. The most obvious indication that anyone supporting these authoritarian measures have no comprehension of any basic science is the fact that the only strategy they feel effective is an enforced double jab. No consideration for natural immunity, no consideration for acquired immunity, no consideration for a negative viral test, and most clearly and importantly, no consideration for the risks of adverse events. We have a right to medical privacy, we have a right to informed consent, we have a right for refusal of treatment. It seems that we have a 2,400-year-old expectation that do no harm will be the driving principle behind medical treatment, and yet we are called upon to comply without question to criminally incompetent and authoritarian overreach because people are too afraid to make rational decisions in the shadows of threats that have never materialized. Now with Omicron, they want to increase the overreach even as the threat is clearly diminishing as one would expect when the disease becomes endemic. Fear-driven thinking is a failure mode. Like any other passion, fear should be kept within due bounds. Hiram, Hiram laid down his life rather than violate his integrity, yet many Masons are willing to happily acquiesce to this mass formation of compliance to authoritarianism because they are afraid of a completely treatable flu. If we are to carry a trowel in our hand and a sword by our side to defend against unprovoked attacks on the temple, what is its purpose if we do not stand to defend 2,400 years of accumulated foundational moral principles in medicine and governance? I will not support any organization that supports or enforces such morally bankrupt policies. Now, that's powerful stuff, and it sounds like there's some heartbreak in there. Uh, obviously, it will be provocative to people who are either very sensitive to COVID dangers or ideologically aligned with the centrist bureaucratic narrative that has held sway. I'm not personally too interested in the conventional politics. I'm assuming anyone in meta spaces should be able to embody a mixture of all sides and reversals and interpretations on any issues. But aside from the issues, uh, I want to talk about a couple of things. The first is the problem that taking a stand and taking a side and embodying a fierce critique often seems socially inappropriate to communities of well-balanced, multi-perspective thinkers. And that sensibility is either an important part of the ethos that keeps us functioning smoothly and not slipping into polarized partial positions, or it's a kind of self-suppressive, self-sabotaging conflation of mild centrist conformity and pseudo-liberal moderatism replacing actual complex higher balanced positions. How does that distinction sit with you? I think that's an appropriate distinction. Sorry, just got where was it going with that? There's <laughs> sorry, brain fracture fragmented in about 10 different directions. Yeah, I just because I'm reading through it, and you know, there's a lot of go back to side uh, the, passion there, and I can imagine yeah. a lot of people in our discussion circles kind of recoiling from that merely by virtue of the fact that it takes a position and has a lot of moral passion. Yeah, so I think that's one of the core issues or problems that we're dealing with. Like we talked about that before with the whole concept of non-rivalrous, which I basically read as "don't ask me hard questions," and this whole idea of approaching or with or and dealing with the shadow. Activists have really been pushing this kumbaya shit really hard since the 60s, um, since Buddhism gained some traction in the West, since uh, 
Hinduism and other you know, South Asian traditions started to get some traction in the West. And when people adopt new things, they kind of pick like the easiest, shiniest piece and pick that up. So idiot compassion has kind of been like the driving force of um, these esoteric movements, I think. Within Buddhism, I think there's a real balance between compassion and wrath. Like even a Buddhist will kill a tyrant at some point. There's that story of the uh, king and the parade and arrow through the heart because this guy's been like just abusive shitbag for years and years and years. Um, and the Buddhist rationale is like, we're going to end his life to save his karma. But either way, you're at such an extreme failure point. How do we identify where these failure points and modes are? How do we ameliorate against falling into these pieces? And I think fundamentally, like the, the most rudimentary problem is complexity of comprehension or complexity of worldview. People reduce things down to the point where it's not really a viable model anymore. I think of this a few different places. Stupid people are often right when they construe and constrain everything down to how they want to see this little parcel of information and from their specific perspective. But as soon as you open it up and step back and look at wider context, they've lost the fucking plot. It no longer holds up. So it's part of this constraining into simple metaphor or simple, simple stupid versus simple elegance. So with the compression thing, we're trying to do simple elegance and do something, uh, bring it down very concise. Simple stupid is basically reductionist, like the difference between rational analysis and post hoc rationalization. And a lot of these things are like boundary conditions that we've lost aspects of language so uh, like words like discrimination you can't use effectively the word discrimination without it having an immediate association with some kind of social politics stuff there's no comprehension of discrimination as a capacity for discernment so here's a functional operator like here's basically here's multiplication we're just going to fucking throw that out of the system we don't need that operator in there anymore and that's kind of the uh the 1984 shift and change in language where we're we're taking away people's capacity to think because we're removing the words associated with the concepts to let them have higher order thinking. It seems so, uh, if not natural, then at least regular for human beings to make that reductionist move to uh, under various pressures and various habits constrain what they're looking at to the point where the sense, the good sense that they would make out of it doesn't really apply in a general sense. What, what do you build into a system to prevent that? Like what you know, you're, you're looking at thing it lacks integrity, you know, along the way, what could have been installed there that would have kept it being something whose integrity would earn your support? Uh, with Freemasonry, I mean, the, the fundamental issue that I've seen specifically within the Grand Lodge and not so much the other bodies is uh, it drifted towards politics. And uh, like I think we mentioned the last time we spoke, like the other school problem. People come to, you know, craft Freemasonry or purple stage integral and like, I've arrived, I've arrived. I mean, like, like no, you, you've arrived at the fucking doorstep. You've just arrived at the beginning of this journey. And that's 
analogous to like, okay, we got 40,000 Freemasons, but we only have 4,000 in the Royal Arch. And in order to actually complete your third degree, you have to do the Royal Arch. So there's that kind of constant problem. Um, and again, it comes back to, okay, we're, we're spending most of our time in the default mode network. 95% of our behavior is completely habituated. And with some people, you can see there's just no error correction loop going along. But the whole point is to take the default mode network, not let it run at factory state. You need to be upgrading it and tuning the model as you go along. So if you're coming along and you reach a problem where my existing model isn't working, like, great, here's the time you can tune up. And next time you come back to it, maybe tune it up a little bit more. There's a resource contention issue where you can't be in like conscious mode thought all the time. You're basically not going to get anything done. You do have to rely on that. The automaton part of human being. But why leave it at factory default? And there's nothing saying that we have to leave it at factory default. And it's just like a sign that someone has not actually developed in any capacity. It's like culture gives us this scaffolding to build out of um, personality. Their temperament kind of gives us the system bus of how the stuff's going to fill out. But some people don't build anything in that superstructure. They've got the cultural facade but there's nothing behind there in any kind of depth. Trying to convey these things out again, again, it's back to like system one, system two. Do you know what vector and raster are in terms of images? Uh, you better explain a little for anyone okay. who's listening. <laughs> the raster is any kind of standard picture, JPEG, bitmap, whatever. It's a series, it's a grid of boxes with assigned color values. So those types of images, that's like system one thinking. You've got a limited capacity to be able to scale up or down before detail is lost and the thing becomes so degraded that the representation isn't actually representative of what the real thing was anymore. Vector images are all basically mathematical models. They will scale up and down as you need to. You can take pieces of that vector and it will occlude specific chunks of it if you need to and it doesn't change the entire uh, structure of the image. Um, so I think that's analogous to these two different types of things. Like I'm going through the checkboxes or I'm kind of seeing the patterns and putting things together in a system machine, however you want to kind of term that. But seeing it as like a living entity where there's things constantly going on and interacting as opposed to check, 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 check. Does it match up with this? Does it hit this Boolean condition? Does it hit this Boolean condition? So um, how do again, we that, make that's our... back to the complexity of yeah. modeling. How do we make our developmental or ostensibly developmental organizations more like that vector model? Uh, pushing for the learning curve. So some of it comes down to the pedagogical, the, the pedagogy, like the, back to the, um, the, the basis of out of shamanism, you come to orthodoxy or mystery tradition. All of these points, we're kind of going through that same space at each of those branches, if we go down one or the other, we're kind of cutting something off. And, but it's like this caduceus thing where it constantly has to be going off in the other direction and then figuring out where that limit case is, coming in, back and around, integrating, updating, repeating process, repeating process. It's the whole idea that the learning curve is infinite. You're not going to get some degree, figure out like everything within some domain. It's like you got to keep going. 
where a lot of people think that like there's this telos to achievement and they think when they reach that i'm done it, it's all over i've kind of hit that point and i can just like sit back and ride on my laurels or rest or whatever where the further along you actually go on that chain um it's more difficult you've got more responsibility you've got uh, capacity like everything kind of ramps up in terms of the complexity and, and this whole idea that there's a masonic race perfection isn't down the side of the grave so yes we're not going to be perfect there's nothing saying we can't drastically fucking reduce our margin of error and we can push that asymptote pretty goddamn hard you uh in your letter you talk about the the, the sword and the kind of tradition that um of defending the temple and there's a you know there's courage and there's risk and there's aggression there and these might be qualities that uh, are insufficiently integrated in our society right both in terms of you know these in the corporate pluralist concern about microaggressions and its tendency to help reinforce a suppressive conformist tendency but also like you were saying the game b tendency to talk about non-rivalrous games in a certain way it, uh, these often let us off the hook for taking the kinds of stances that aggression empowers us to take now clearly and we want collaboration well. and civility and congeniality but you know if people don't get pissed off within reason then systems seem to naturally overreach when the individuals aren't pushing back with that kind of energy yeah and i think a lot of people can't make the distinction between amplitude aggression and passion and once they can't make that distinction, they can't actually see the arguments that are being made. It's like, oh, you're just being aggressive. Well, try walking through the channel logic here. Um, a couple of points with that. If you're in some kind of an organization and you've got contrarians, you should be hitting them all the time and seeing whether or not they're effective. If they're effective contrarians, that's who has got to be your sounding board. Like um, if someone's your friend, you can't really trust them if they're not going to watch your six and call you on your shit. Like if you can't call me on my blind spots, can I really trust you? Because <laughs> we're just sharing a complete perspective. We're not actually integrating anything. I think Eric Weinstein posted something about this with around the DNA lab. Uh, this was like maybe a year and a half, two years ago. And the working relationships were all seriously contentious, but there's no ego involved. It's about a push to find what is the best idea or the most optimal solution and to synthesize and integrate that as opposed to pushing yourself um, in some kind of protected space or um, like in Freemates, the, the whole push towards gold braid and adulation is like, oh, well, I was grand superintendent or whatever. I got one of these titles. Great. So do lots of other people. This is, this is kind of the expectation when you step into this thing is like, you're going to take on these fucking responsibilities, learn how to do this stuff and kind of improve as a human being. But you get, again, that you hit the first threshold, people think I've arrived. Oh, I've got the gold raid. I'm arrived. I'm the grand poobah, blah, blah, blah. And uh, they just kind of check out after that or the ego gets involved and they're kind of looking for the adulation and attention, not understanding that this is, these should be treated like kingship roles where it's a stewardship. You're there to steward the responsibility of that office. It's not about you. You salute the office, not the man in the, in the uh, uniform or whatever. This um, 
capacity of individuals to um, speak up with integrity, to affirm the correct kinds of functional contrarians, to uh, even in themselves push back against the titles and roles that uh, they are accruing. I'm wondering what the shamanic dimension is in that, because it seems to me there might be a connection to nature immersion, access to wilderness spaces, you know, outdoor tasks in complex interregulating environments. Is, is there something crucial about wilderness experience and the development of the capacities and sensibilities around healthy participatory aggression and healthy expectations within social organizations? I think in as much as that it's exposing you to real world environments, real world consequences. I think the warrior tradition is a major piece that's kind of been lost. Um, there's a phrase that I've used for a while. From Temujin to Tenzin, all true battles are within. So how did Genghis Khan turn into Tibetan Buddhism? The Tibetan Buddhists consider them, call themselves the sons of Genghis Khan. The term Dalai Lama or Ocean of Wisdom goes back to that period so how did this transition into this? And it's mostly through the application of discipline through the warrior's tradition. After a time, you, you reach a point of development where you realize the battles aren't out there. The battles are me governing my own shit, keeping my own stuff in check and being able to deal with the uh, situations as they come up. I think like again back to the mystery tradition thing or whatever it is i don't think the what is as important as just engaging in the act of discipline so within freemasonry a lot of it is like when you go through the chairs every one of the chairs or offices has a different set of responsibilities and as you go through those chairs from the outer guard to the master's chair you're going to learn everything that needs to be done in order to run and maintain an organization you're going to have a chance to embody each of those specific roles understand how they integrate and work with all the other roles so you're leveling people up as they go through that kind of a process there's a uh, lot sorry, of yeah there's a lot of concerns here and i'm wondering about how we prioritize them like uh, uh, if somebody gives john verbeke a million dollars and says set up uh, the religion that isn't a religion uh, what's the number one thing that has to be on his mind to prevent it from having the same kinds of degradation we've seen in some of these other organizations? So two things I would take as your baseline pattern, uh, the institution of Freemasonry, uh, which is basically runs like a constitutional monarchy. You have elections. So part of the problem is you don't want people static within there. So to take the formal organizational structure of the mystery tradition, and then it needs to be integrated into something for the open group architectural framework. So the TOGAF's an enterprise, a methodology for developing enterprise architecture. So this is business rules on steroids, orders of magnitude. So these are things that are can be applied to large businesses, corporations, or TOGAF has even been used to model um, like government ministries at the municipal, uh, state, federal level, so it gives you a way of developing an enterprise architecture that's non-prescriptive. Part of setting that up is breaking down your different concerns of what have to be addressed within it. You're kind of mapping that stuff out in the first go round. And it's into the organizational DNA. You're building in iterative structure. You're building in 
performance KPIs or key performance monitoring, whatever that uh, manifests or means to that particular organization. And you're also building in this constant process of introspection where we put something out, did it work? We make adjustments, we integrate that into the central part of it and then push those changes back out and building the constant iteration and learning process into the organization itself. That's the pieces that need to hook together, I think. Nice. You know, uh, in some of the material you sent me, one thing that really stood out to me was this notion of uh, God being wary in the apprehension of his creation. And, uh, you know, in setting up complex systems and procedures and even, even particular intergenerational procedures aimed at establishing the depth of individuals and the flourishing of communities, you know, what's the role played by the appropriate appreciation of risk and our stance toward unknown consequences and the unpredictability of our powers? Like what's, what's the optimal disposition towards unleashing a process? I think Brett Weinstein's got some good ideas and can we reverse it? Is it reversible? Again, that somewhat links back to the chain and lineage thing. Can we go back to the last non-failure point, roll things back and work our way forward to, again to figure out where the process failed and then integrate that into the code base and move forward? Um, that's part of it. I thought there was something else that was going to say that we completely lost. No, the reversibility aspect is great, even on its own there. Uh, our fellow Ontario citizen, Jordan Peterson, has argued that the, the right politically and instinctively exists to maintain hierarchies of merit, and the left exists to remediate those hierarchies when they become corrupt or go astray. And there's obviously some truth to that, but it tends to overlook the significance of certain systemic factors. Right? In particular, I think it ignores the idea that the protocols themselves have varying degrees of depth and competency. And it also underplays the degree to which meritocracies regularly ascribe merit to perceived competence, which is often just the individuals who can successfully insulate themselves from the consequences of their decisions. So I'm curious what you think are the qualities that should lead people to have a greater say in healthy hierarchy, but also how do we leverage this wisdom of crowds thing and set up systems that can outperform the competence, even of the better individuals. I think there's some difficulty in that. I mean, when we're looking at the crowdsourcing stuff, we have to have a realistic look at um, population dynamics and consider the, we're, we'll use IQ as a proxy here for intelligence and wisdom, but your baseline's a hundred. That tapers off fairly slowly. So, how am I going to this out here? Sorry, this takes me in like a million different directions. Yeah, and no I didn't problem. want to get back to something that you talked about with uh, McGillicrist there and the wariness. So, McGillicrist and a few others have been very critical of the idea of an engineering god. And if you're looking at junior engineers, and uh, you know, production line engineers, I completely fucking understand. But if you're a competent engineer who's doing, you know, complex distributed stuff, not just like writing basic programs, 
you launch something complicated, there is that aspect of wariness. You understand how complicated it is and you understand how many different ways it can fuck up and fail. So it's a very different disposition to engaging the work as opposed to, oh, I'm brilliant. We're, we've got this awesome application that's going to do X, Y, Z, whatever, and it'll run forever. Whereas if you've had any depth of experience doing those kind of things, you know there are significant risks to it. There's real capacity for failure uh, and you have to be attentive to that. So, and it was good was like, okay, where he is like, okay, we're going to keep an eye on this, pay attention and focus to what's going on and actually kind of guide things as they're moving and going along. Can we do uh, the second point that we followed up after that? You're, you were uh, going in a different direction there before I took us on a rewind to come again. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I mean, I was thinking about two things, and I guess one of them is what are the qualities that deserve to be promoted in an, a functional organic hierarchy? Obviously, one of them you were just talking about the wariness and the experience. Competence and integrity. Yeah. Competence um, and integrity. I think if, if we're going to build trust relationship, yeah. I need to have there's two vectors I need to build, have trust established on your ability to be able to do what you say you're going to do and do it effectively and your intention to actually follow through and execute. Yeah. I think I sent you a picture about that before, about the, the trust relationship grid. One vector you're moving on uh, wisdom integration and the other one you're developing mastery. And as those two things are building out, you're becoming more competent, developing more integrity. So integrity as internal coherence. Mm. The more internally coherent the model is, maybe you're only a 20, I, or like 120 IQ, but if that model is really well-formed, you're probably going to perform somebody who's even at mental level. Like I've seen this uh, a number of times. Let's talk to academics about system level issues and it's just, and then some duties in construction, or whatever, yeah, it just picks it up right up because they understand how systems organize. You need the foundation put in, you need your service buses and infrastructure put in. You build the, the frame before you put the fucking paint job on, which is a lot of things, something most people get backwards. It's like, oh, let's figure out the aesthetic. It's like, no, you need to figure out the structure of how the shit's gonna work first before you start dressing it up. So yeah, uh, competence and integrity, I mean, those are the two, fundamental things the the integrity aspect also covers the like self-reflection being able to call yourself out in your own shit and be called out and accept okay yeah i fucked that one up i'm wrong let's take that piece of information upgrade the model and move forward from there no i appreciate that because the i mean the integrity problem is huge right and it's very easy for people to mistake their strong moral emotions <laughs> for having integrity, just like it's possible yeah. for anybody to mistake their best capacity, whether it's intellectual or emotional or whatever, for a generalized circumstance about themselves. But that's very different. Your best capacity and the integration of multiple capacities that allow you to um, show up as a more complete human being, but also modulate the different dimensions of any circumstance that you're embedded in. It's not a question. It just seems super important. <laughs> well, we need those error correction mechanisms in there. Go back. I think we talked about OODA loops before or uh, voice loop. 
So it's observe, orient, decide, act. Uh, so like the Malaysian wine dance thing. Like I'm up facing forward, I'm observing, I orient, go down, decide, and then act and come back up into that space again. Um, so you, your direct interface engagement with the world meets space, there's a new loop running there. If you've got some aspect of metacognition, then there's a second OODA loop that this one is running nested in. This one's running as a background process. So when there's a contention thing here, this one steps up and goes, okay, let's tune this, integrate, fix, let this one run again. So it's this back and forth between the default mode network and the executive network. And the problem is most people are just sitting here. There's no back and forth between the two. They just get stuck into this model. And as soon as that <laughs> rut kind of happens, that rut just gets deeper and deeper and deeper and people just descend into the limbic system and emotional response stuff. It's just like a constantly narrowing tunnel of the focus and attention. So one thing is for the individuals to be the right kinds of individuals who can move forward in these systems and be sort of privileged in these systems in order to uh, privilege the qualities that are possessed by the right kinds of people. But there's also this uh, strong tendency of any organization or social space, once it gets big enough, to be colonized by competing subgroups. And then a lot yeah. of the individual issues go right out the window because now it's a kind of war scenario. So what do we, how do groups prevent themselves from coming under the sway of competing group interests? Part of that, I think, is the organizational cancer of bureaucracy. So people start to accrete around the process, and then they start to make this cognitive shift where they're no longer there to support a role within the organization. The organization's basically there to support their role, their being. Uh, so within you know, organizations like universities, you'll see people over the course of like 20 years, set these little fiefdoms of power slowly over time. If you've got an organizational process where you're looking at these key performance indicators, what's actually happening, tracking your expenditure of resources, what are you actually getting for that expenditure of resources and monitoring that on a uh, consistent periodic basis, those kind of people have less room to fuck around. So that uh, the bureaucratic thing and that piece kind of fit together where you need the you need the insight into the organization, you need the transparency aspect happening, where if we want to open up the hood, we'll look at every fucking component underneath there, we can go and do that and see how everything's actually fitting together. It's when you start putting up these blocks and isolation of, uh, or impeding or occluding insight into the dynamics of the organization and how things are done. Um, then that's just a recipe for disaster. As soon as people, as soon as bad actors have a little bit of space where they can include themselves from scrutiny, they will just accrete. And then it's like a crustacean or what are they? Mayflies will go into the water and they start picking up little pebbles and building up this accreted shell around them. Well, they can just keep building that out. And all of a sudden this little blind spot you thought was in the organization. Now it's like, over time, it's accreted into something kind of large and cancerous. Well, that's a great, 
uh, segue into uh, digging a little bit deeper into the forms of corruption. One form of corruption is decay around developmental organizations. So decay, I'm, my impression is that decay involves uh, degeneration of the capacities that an organization needs in order to sustain itself, right? And particularly in the form of how do we get money and resources to keep this going? And also how do we keep bringing in new people and the right people that, um, I know we've talked, we talked before about the failure of mm, that not having a culture of initiatory rituals creates an ethos in which commitment itself isn't sexy. Uh, but at the same time, the kinds of organizations we'd like to set up have to strike people as being awesome, right? It has to make them seem like the quality of your life and understanding and empowerment is going to significantly improve in the degree to which you commit. And, and that seems to be a real limitation on getting the membership aspect. Um, what, what's your yeah, take I think on the, the as, yeah. There's an aspirational importance there, much in the way that Peterson's talking about the sense of awe and the imitation. That the organization must embody that in order to pull people along. And again, when you're setting goals for them, they can't be low goals like this because it's not, it's that balancing point of like, trying to hit the flow state like you got to be pushing hard and far enough where there's some capacity to lose and the loss is not trivial but at the same time it can't be so far out and so far overreaching that it's not attainable so it's somewhere within the smart goal range but treating figuring out where that stretch is and always putting it a little bit higher i think that was one of the problems with uh integral as it launched it's like here we've got stage two and then okay what's next there's always going to be things along there. And if people are really for, far along ahead of the curve there, they need to be kind of laying out that trajectory two, three points ahead of where the population is or two or three um, change or horizons or uh, complexity horizons or whatever it is. They, there needs to be a couple of extra layers above there where people who are more aspirational can keep pushing themselves. So they don't get to the point where like, okay, I'm done. We've done everything here. That's enough. There needs to be more in there. And I think at a certain point when you're building up, it's not just about adding more things on, it's getting in, breaking down, subdividing, increasing the resolution of what you're actually looking at, as opposed to just trying to accrete more things into the model. So there's a sense more resolution, of more finesse to combat decay in terms of regenerative membership, there's got to be an adequate um, and extended aspirational ceiling that invites the feeling that there is going to be flow that's possible. And that flow is going to be um, not only empowering, but it's going to put you up against the risks and challenges that will really take you to the next level because there's going to be a real difficulty there. And part of that difficulty is going to be in increasing the, um, the richness, nuance, and detail of the understanding. Does that sound right? Yeah, right on point, yeah. Okay. So uh, one of the other problems besides decay is the ossification problem, right? So, uh, you know, whatever people are thinking about the, the truckers in the Canadian Freedom Convoy, it's quite apparent that there's been no immediate capacity in any of our major political institutions to integrate or adaptively assimilate the energy and perspectives that are coming forth there. Uh, 
right? And there's other, there's a lot of other problems, right? Famously, the Catholic Church took half a millennium to agree with Galileo, or our market economy doesn't seem to be able to uptake our concerns about climate instability and other massive accumulating social disruptors. So we need to be asking ourselves, how do we build um, chaos and flexibility into systems and generate an ethos of adaptive integration to prevent ossification? I think that one is straight up back to the system one, system two thing. Uh, When you've got organs, like individuals is one thing, but when you've got organizations that are running on narrative and mimetics, you're not going to get anything else. That's how it's going to operate. That's the constraints of what it's capable of. So getting people to think more in systems, more in complex and robust models. Um, I think I talked about the complexity chain, I think before. So I'm kind of following this in terms of human evolutionary development, um, individual cognitive development. When you go from like point or the individual or the baby that's undifferentiated doesn't understand that it's a separate entity from the world. Go from point to line, which is dichotomy to area, triangle, that's our uh, most efficient geometric value. Triangle, or sorry, from area to volume, so tetrahedron. From there, point line, area, volume, abstraction, and then calibrated abstraction or gauge theory. So in the adult world space, we need to be operating on the calibrated abstraction level, and most people are down here at the dichotomy and if we're lucky at the area level so there's two major ranges of complexity of comprehension that are basically absent in our everyday social discourse in any meaningful sense of the word some of that's just the problem of dealing with meatbags some of that's cultural because culture is providing that scaffolding of how we're actually going to learn into something and if the lexical fields have been salted or then, you know, things just do not grow as well. It doesn't really matter how intelligent you are. If you're in a culture that is intellectually barren and without micronutrients, you're not going to reach maximal achievement. And I think our culture has kind of become like that. Like it's, it's not just food deserts, there's intellectual deserts as well. Well, I'm curious to what degree there would be things we can build into systems that correct for some of that. Like um, the movie World War Z wasn't very good, but an interesting feature was one country gets ahead of the others in facing the zombie plague because of a procedure they call the 10th man procedure, which is if nine people in the government or military council agree with something, it's the patriotic duty of the 10th person to start acting as if the opposite of that were true and trying to set up programs for that, right? So that's one example of a system where they're trying to build in some kind of adequate contrarian element to make it more complicated, to make it more complex, to uh, in, in some ways compensate for the fact that the individuals you have might be insufficiently uh, competent or coming out of an ethos that might be insufficiently competent. You know, what, yeah. you know, w- what are the real options there, right? Is it, is it realistic to think we could build in uh, some of these mechanisms? I think we can. Um, it's going to take a lot of work and it's going to take a lot of time. It's also going to take a shift in attitudes. So with all this kumbaya bullshit we've been dealing with since the sixties, like yeah, well, everybody has a valid opinion. Like 
No, sorry. <laughs> if you and there's this uh, common trope of if you've got something to learn from everybody, or you can learn something from anyone. If they're individuated, yes, that's probably true. If they're just an NPC, it's actually not likely. If they're just going to repeat the same thing that 1,500 other people have repeated and they haven't actually engaged in any type of self-individuation, I'm sorry, you're just like a checkbox in a bucket. You're not actually an individual perspective. And people keep acting as if they embody these things and, oh, I have an individual perspective. Like the only, the only relevant opinions are informed ones. So we need to start looking at what actually constitutes an informed opinion, like baseline knowledge within a domain. Um, in Freemasonry, we term we use understanding what the landmarks are within that knowledge domain, and it's usually fairly easy to test people. If you understand a domain, you can lay out a couple of breadcrumbs and see whether or not people engage them or how they engage them, and it'll very quickly establish what their level of comprehension within that domain is. Because if you don't recognize the common landmarks, you're probably a little out of your depth. So being able to understand, engage, build mechanisms in where we can build those things. And part of that, again, is just like stepping out of the Linux system, these meatbag hacks of like, oh, I'm super confident, so I must be right. Or all these kind of, yeah. these hacks against the meatbag where it's, there's no such thing as a good faith emotional argument. It's an exploit against the limbic system, not an argument or an analysis. As soon as you put people down into that limbic system response, prefrontal cortex is cut off. They're no longer embodied beings. They're, they've gone into NPC or automaton mode where it's strictly reactive and they're not actually engaging in both intellectually or like in terms of their attention in the world. It's all of a sudden become this, here's, the salience box and everything outside of that is kind of no longer relevant. Yeah, I think some people might hear that as um, a dismissal of right brain capacity, but I think what we have to remember is there's there's two halves to the prefrontal cortex, right? When we're saying that, we're talking about yeah. um, the more primitive aspects of emotionality and not the ability of feelings to access actual patterns at a higher level. Well, as I said before, the, these these are part of the superstructure. They're not going away. But if we give them primacy at this low order, everything above that is compromised. You're no longer able to engage these pieces. If you're up here and integrated, well, it effectively implies that these are already integrated on the way up. You've already done this work. It's in order to be preventing able to get here. stack from collapsing to one of those lower levels. Yeah, you're, you're building them each up so that when you run into stress and failure modes, you're not failing back too far. So I'm just going to close the blind here because yeah, it's coming in pretty hard. I want to come back to these corruption questions, but I, I just have a quick sideline here, which is, you know, how um, in your experience of developmental occult fraternities or networks or whatever we're going to call these things, how much preparatory awareness is there how much uh, understanding of big shifts that are in play are there right because um, lineages may have a bias in favor of thinking that conditions will remain fairly similar and there are a lot of things that will remain similar and we can easily exaggerate the novelty of our current condition but we are looking at a whole bunch of factors 
whether it's ecological or cybernetic or whatever it is that could each of them individually could massively and radically change what's been going on on this planet for a long time. Even as Peterson points out, right, birth control is potentially a hugely radical disruption to the way life has been organizing itself. And we may not have even begun yeah. to see what those consequences are. So how much awareness is there and how much structural alignment is there toward different futures, toward disruption, towards uh, the radical possibility of tomorrow being different from the past within these uh, lineages and networks that we've got? I would say from my experience, most of them are just focused on maintaining their own lineage, like outside of mainstream Freemasonry. There aren't that many bodies that have been around for a long time. I mean, there's the stuff that uh, Crowley set up or was associated with. Some of those groups are still kind of extant, but at the same time, they're not really coherent. There seems to be few areas where they actually have lodges or groups that are actually meeting. A lot of it's people kind of studying in isolation, so there is no sense of uh, group cohesion or coherence. And then some of these are just aesthetically, they're gauged to uh, different types of personalities. So if you look at the dilemma, that's like teenage boy, adolescent kind of stuff. Uh, The whole mindset about dilemma is very much driven to that direction. But again, I'll uh, touch on a Crowley quote while we're here. Love is the law, or do with thou will, it shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law of love under will. So that, especially the latter part of that statement, is basically a litmus test for understanding someone's approach to this process. If you believe love under will means love subjugated by will, that's an illustration of where you're coming from in some degree. If you believe that love is the foundation for will, then it's an entirely different process. And if you understand that both of those are kind of constantly churning, then you've got a whole integrated process within there. It's kind of shifting from static stuff to dynamic processes that are able to reinvigorate and keep on going and kind of step out of that ossification and coagulation thing. The Crowley descended organizations, um, and maybe might even include uh, Wicca and things like that in, in this general movement that tends to be, I think, in the public imagination, separated from Freemasonry, uh, partly by its focus on sexual energies. Uh, and I'm curious what the role of, of sexual energies is within Freemasonry or within other cult fraternities that don't stand out to people as, as having a strong sex bias in the sense of the Crowleyan organizations. Within Freemasonry, I wouldn't say there's any whatsoever. Is that a virtue or is that a weakness? I think it's meant to be a quote-unquote man's tradition more so it's meant to be the freemasonry speaks to people who can think in temporal spatial uh, kind of constructs so for most women it's it's not going to be appealing not going to have any meaningful 
reference to them. The stuff that it did with the ancient builders of the North, that was very much more complete balance between masculine and feminine energies. So the officers' roles within the Perneus were linked. You had, they were paired. You had a masculine and feminine through each of the different officers' roles within the organization. It's hard to, like, I think a lot of it is, again, just stepping back into limbic system and distraction. So people confusing intensity of experience to value and meaning of experience. Because a lot of times they will overlap, but it's not necessarily a guarantee. You can have really intense experiences that actually end up being quite trivial. <laughs> are these organizations, you know, it doesn't seem like they are from what you're saying, networks that we could rely on to be generally useful in a crisis or what would they have to be like in order to be of use I think to people generally under conditions of disruption? Right? If the internet goes down and there's a solar flare or the oceans rise or whatever it is, um, what role can a better form of Freemasonry play in that? I think we'd have to look back into history and some of the colonial period. So let's say late 1700s and on, Freemasonry became important if you were moving around. Because if you were a member of the lodge, you could come to a new community and you came with some credibility. If you came without that, they didn't know you from Adam all those uh, community relationships, all that credibility stuff you have to build up. And that's usually over the course of like, what, three, four, five years when you move to a community, depending on how engaged you are. Whereas if you can bump start that, there's a good basis for that. There's a lot of, there's an emphasis on travel within Freemasonry and going to different lodges and districts. I think that's part of it. There is a, a big emphasis on uh, benevolence, both in general charity and in, helping out brothers or someone comes to visit you, you know, put them up for the night or whatever, and that kind of stuff. But I think over the last say 10 to 15 years, a big chunk of that has kind of diminished as it has diminished across the rest of culture. So the, the water line has come down and it's come down in that organization as well. That's an interesting time frame. Uh, how, how much do you think that's connected to the emergence of the kinds of communication technologies that we're all hooked into now, right? Because the last 10 to 20 years, that's the period of internet, wireless, algorithmic, and social networking dominance. I think you see some big changes there. I think there were changes before that. So if you track back to the 1990s, that seems to be when this new wave of postmodernism kind of really got its hooks into things and just sat and incubated for a few years. If you go back and look, or for me going back and looking at that period of the mid nineties, like I came from a redneck high school where when I told people I was going to Trent, like, oh, you're going to the bag college. And then when I went to Trent, uh, second year I was there, I was part of the intro week committee. And I had a dude from Toronto who had been openly gay his whole second time in high school. So just complete, flip in terms of what was going on people were becoming more socially aware civil compassionate but at the same time there was this underbelly of privileged little kids from the suburbs coming in and saying 
oh, we're, we're going to give marginalized people a voice by speaking for them. It's like, yeah, it doesn't fucking work that way. If you want to give them a voice, you give them a space and shut the fuck up and get out of their way and let them speak if they want to. This whole thing of like, oh, I'm just going to don this identity of the protector and go out and speak for people is just utter bullshit. And I saw that really, really fucking take off in the 90s. Around the late 90s, I think earlier in these cultural periods, as people are going through youth, a lot of identity was associated with music and musical scenes. And near the end of the 1990s, that just fucking exploded and deteriorated. Once grunge hit the mainstream market, musical subculture started to die. Uh, even within electronica, where you just have, you see this bifurcation of styles where it'd be like a new genre every week or every month in some forms of electronica. And by the time 2002 rolled around, that was kind of done. I mean, Napster was kind of part of that, but something else had shifted in culture. And then between those two kind of points, you have all this shit going on with uh, September 11, 2001, and that major kind of trauma impact happening to the culture where you get people just was in that year i think overall advertising spending and everything else went down like 60 percent across the nation it just like clamped everything down in the market and wiped the whole lot of stuff out and we kind of had that fear and clamping thing kind of going on from mainstream media like pushing the fear uncertainty out factor uh, more and more so i think it was pretty heavy around 2011 really kind of kicked it off. Then you've got uh, Bush saying these really kind of fundamentalist statements like you're either with us or against us or that kind of stuff. And then there's the constant push on fear and certainty doubt. So looking at the impact that that has on cognition, stress impact that can take IQ down 30 points. Framing things in a good versus evil story can take another 10, 15 points. Back that together, you can take someone from Mensa to the point where the U.S. Army thinks they're not fucking trainable anymore. So that's the seriousness of the impact of these kind of limbic captures on our capacity to actually be functional and adult. I mean, it, I don't think it can be understated. Looking that in the context of something like the Flynn effect. So if James Flynn calls himself a moral philosopher, did a bunch of work on uh, psychology and understanding IQ, looked at the way IQ testing had changed with the Army, how it tested over time from like localized concrete knowledge to more abstract knowledge, like rep, uh, being more a measure of capacity for thinking or instead of a reference of, do you know the same shit that I do? So from 1900 to 1970, someone who tested as 100 IQ in 1970 would have been 130 in 1900. So the whole population demographic came up 30 points over the course of about seven years. By the time we get into the 1980s, male IQs are stopping from there. Male IQs have dropped 15%. So it didn't just come up and plateau, came up and then just fucking tanked again. And that period of where things start to tank is very integrated with culture kind of pushing these whole mommy dynamics out into the public space um and the the kind of groundswell of the care hard care and harm dynamics through the public space in terms of our moral foundations 
discussed is probably the most primitive care harms right after that, because you go from, I don't want to touch shit to this is about my baby. And then all the other moral foundations are basically not relevant until you have social context. So they would not have evolved until social context exists. So there's a lot of things that can trigger the degeneration of intelligence and the um, undermining of nuance, right? It can come in different styles, it can come in different moods, it can come in a more distributed or a more authoritarian or more masculine. And it'll affect people in different ways depending yeah. on the temperament and, then, and all that kind of stuff. As well. And there'll be all these different moments in history that are, are the bad ones that are causing this degeneration. But how do we make ourselves more uh, robust against that, right? If, if people are individually or collectively working on building up increased layers of nuance in themselves, that's pretty easy under very nice, very stable conditions. How do they, what do we do yeah. to ensure that when there's pressure of various kinds that we don't just start regressing and losing the nuance we've achieved? To a degree, you need to be able to step into it. So you have to learn how to step into that pressure when the volume is not so high. If you start building your way into it, kind of like any other skill, you're, on, you're building up capacity over time through iterations, through the application of discipline. So it's um, like voluntary. It's, generally just about, it's about leaning into that infinite learning curve and engaging it. If you're willing to do that, you're going to keep moving along and progressing in that way. If you get complacent, um, then that process stops. Maybe you get derailed. Okay, that happens sometimes, but if you can get back on track, you can keep kind of going. I think diversity of experience and youth as well <clears throat> is critically important where you get ex exposed to as many different things as possible, as many different perspectives as possible. Because at least if you cut a little brush trail in there in terms of the, the neuroplasticity, when you come back to that 20 years later, okay, there's at least a track through the bush. You don't have to cut everything out from scratch and kind of figure out where the raw landscape is, even if it hasn't been fully developed or maintained over time. It's much easier to go back there when at least some kind of linkage has been set up as opposed to here's raw earth, green hell, jungle, got to hack your way through it. So I think diversity of experience early on in childhood is really, really critical. And then just the engagement of being willing to push yourself and being engaged in the learning process, understanding it's, it's an infinite learning curve. You know, can't do it all at once. You won't do it all at once, but just keep kind of leaning into that. And if you've got that dispositional approach, that's going to continue to carry along in that way. Let's come back to the questions around corruption that we were talking about a little while ago. We discussed decay and ossification. There's this other tendency of pathology that, uh, you know, liberal bureaucracies are famously good at avoiding large accumulating problems by claiming that a few bad apples are to blame and not looking at any general systemic or incentive based factors. But yeah. there are also bad apples in play. <laughs> That's a real thing. So how do we... And the um, systemic based stuff is usually giving them the opportunities to exploit Yeah. Because great arguments, right? Well, obviously, if you get rid of a few bad apples and you don't get rid of the reasons why they were there or why they were able to go well in a system, 
then you haven't really done your job. But when most people think of corruption, that's what they think of as a few individuals who are trying, who are privileging their own benefit over the functioning of the system. So I think the question here is what makes systems unduly vulnerable to parasites, predators, these, you know, bad apples, and how could systems be set up in ways that are more robust against the inevitable presence of people who are trying to take advantage of them? Some of it, it's rule sets and transparency. So in some, at least at the basis, we need to be able to think not just at this decision, we need to be able to think from this decision to secondary and at least tertiary consequences and how those things are going to extrapolate. Maybe our uh, funnel of predictability gets wider, but at least that work has to be done so we have some sense of what the landscapes are in those directions. I think the major exploits that we need to watch out for is just like this basic meatbag stuff, whether it's somebody like Trump or Trudeau, I consider them, they're basically the same. They appeal to the same intellectual capacity on either side of the political aisle. Uh, complete system one, go along with my ideology. I really don't see them as being that different. I think Trudeau is probably more dangerous because he's got that good guy free pass. Oh, he seems nice. He pulls people into this hail and horns bullshit where they can't actually make any clear decisions or um, have any clear insight into the, the data that they're seeing. Because you see this halo and horns thing, it's really at the basis of the, the tribalism dynamic. And I don't know, like watching this thing go down with the truckers, you see the shit on mainstream news and uh, posts from level people, it's just like, are you connected with reality at all? Like, the, where are the races? Where's all the violence? You've got live streams of this thing happening for continuous hours every day. And yet people are immediately and completely sucked into this hyperbolic fucking bullshit coming out of the mainstream narrative. That is just utter fucking nonsense. And it's been happening with COVID over the last few years as well. But I think the trucker thing is just like another instance over the last year. It's let anybody who's actually fucking functioning intellectually see how great this disparity is between what we're being presented and what the fuck is actually going on in the world. Yeah, I think regardless of the side or position people hold, my experience is there's an enormous gap between the people I talk to and what's being reported in what I wish <laughs> were, were functional mainstream news outlets in this country. The, the news streams I get are all um, dramatically divergent from what I hear from the majority of Canadians I talk to in person. Yeah, it's become complete propaganda, whether it's propaganda at the state level or the corporate level, it's just weapons of mass distraction. And then that's why some people have checked out of it in the last couple of years. And if people are actually engaged in any capacity or in any capacity engaged in the world, this narrative stuff just starts to fall apart. You start coming up against the wall. So uh, Eric Weinstein uses the term, the gated institutional narrative. So let me lay this out in the context. Pretend we have four concentric circles. Within the center of the circle, the white part, that is the mainstream. Outside of that, you've got three shadows. You've got the Anton, Antumbra, Penumbra, Umbra. At the edge of the Antumbra, the false shadow, that is the 
boundary of the gated institutional narrative, what is acceptable to be known. At the outer boundary of the Antambra, you have the gist, uh, the gated institutional salience terminus. Beyond that point, the gated institutional narrative is not able to extrapolate or model in any effective capacity because it doesn't have insight from there. Then you start getting, so outside of that, you get into the stuff that is like countercultural, subcultural, metacultural. It's actually outside of whatever this core mainstream NPC land, you want to call it that, where it's all narrative driven. I've been thinking about that model for a while. So it's a lot of people just want to kind of stay in the light. They step into the false shadow and it's like, oh no, the false shadow. Again, not realizing, looking from the light into the dark, you can't see anything. It looks scary because everything is occluded. Whereas if you're deep in the shadows looking back, you can see a whole lot more. If you've been out past that boundary, you can actually see where the boundary conditions are, where they've been formed, where they're shifting and shaping. But if you're looking from the light out, you're never actually going to understand or comprehend where those boundary conditions are set or how they're being laid or how they're being influenced because it's it's a perspectival constraint where that's not actually possible unless you can kind of come up and shift the perspective around to be able to see it from a different angle. And that's where stepping out of the mainstream Antopper into Penumbra or Real Shadow um, actually allows for greater capacity or uh, wider perspective on what's happening within the mainstream. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's... Um... I mean, it's very rich. There's a lot to contemplate in that metaphor. I think it could be, <laughs> it's like a great symbol. It could be unpacked for a long time. Coming back to the corruption thing again, there's this uh, fourth category, this cacistocracy, <laughs> which is a funny word, yeah. but there's obviously a lot of predictable dynamics that cause shit to rise to the top. Uh, there are like uh, the classic is it called the Peter principle? People get promoted to their level of yeah. incompetence, right? So systems yeah. are filling up at the top with incompetence. There's um, Saline's law from Robert Anton oh, Wilson books. One sec there. Yep. The Peter principle, that's one of the problems with the bureaucratic institution thing. Whereas if we go back to Freemasonry, looking at people moving through the chairs and being forced to progress through them. And then once you've done the pinnacle chair, then you're part of the institutional knowledge. You can't get people stuck in those positions right. because you're not, the organization is not set up in such a way that someone can just sit and fucking coast forever. There's always got to be some kind of churn and rotation right. so that people do not become too complacent in whatever roles that they're doing. That's a very uh, Nassim Taleb principle. I've heard him say there. The problem is not that there's a 1%, but that it's the same 1%, right? That there isn't circulation as much as we yes. need through these positions. And that comes back to the whole viability of ecosystems too. Things are too static. There is no capacity for growth. There needs to be some kind of uh, cycling and exchange of energy for those things to actually continue to grow. Yeah. Like, uh, who was it? I think it was uh, Greenhall was talking about laminar flow at one point. It's like, well, that's great. It looks real pretty, but it's not fucking viable for organic life. Organic knife needs the turbulence and those other little things and those eddies and pools where you've got diversity of topology and things can kind of emerge out of that. Whereas the laminar flow is just like, it's 
the pure monoculture. There's no differentiation within there, so nothing is capable of ever growing within that context. Well, I've been thinking about another aspect of the of the shit rising to the top problem, and you know, let me know if this seems like it's addressed by the same things or not. Um, when I was a kid, I loved Robert Anton Wilson books, and he has a thing called Salian's Law, where basically, you know, communication is only possible between equals. But the expanded version of it is. Uh, in any system where you get to reward or punish your inferiors, they have no choice but to provide you with incomplete or distorted information. As a result, at each level upward in the in a linear hierarchy, people are less informed about what's actually going on to the point where the people with the highest positions in the status hierarchy know the least about what's actually functioning in the system. I would say that's completely true of the, of the corporate world. A lot of C-level executives, I mean, it has to be written on a half page in fucking crayon or they will not comprehend what's going on. I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. I've dealt with dozens of C-level executives over 30 years and not that many of them are too fucking sharp, like intellectually speaking. They're generally very good at social manipulation. That's a whole different other set of skills. And that comes back to if you want your institution to function, you need to get rid of these social manipulators because they are not bringing anything viable or valuable to the table. They're bringing failure conditions. It's very, that seems very closely related to some studies I've seen on the way that uh, uh, certain forms of loyalty and deference towards superiors reduce the level of social complexity to which they are exposed and the consequences of this in their brains duplicates certain forms of brain damage. So I was familiar with what you were saying about the need for organic turbulence, right? There's some, it's becoming, because they're good at socially manipulating, they get themselves into situations where they don't face enough social turbulence. And as a result, whole sections of their brain become dormant and they become uh, stupider than they were even before. So yeah. I, you know, how, how do we prevent that? <laughs> I don't think we can like prevent it in any absolute sense. What we have to do is try to provide incentive to go in the other direction. I mean, depending what's valued in culture, if that title of expert is all people are after, then everything's always going to shift in that direction where it's like social capital is the only thing that actually fucking matters. Um, do we have to treat other things or things other than social capital as actually valuable? When, I don't know, looking at uh, people famous for being famous, whether it's Paris Hilton or the Kardashians or whatever, it's like <clears throat> there's something deeply fucking broken <clears throat> within your culture if that's what you're elevating. Um, the why, I mean, you kind of need to do a forensic decomposition there. The whole push of uh, the hard care dynamics and superficiality, I think, are fundamental to that. A lot of people just, they care about the paint job. What does it look like? What are the aesthetics like? Not What's happening under the aesthetics? How does the machine actually function? Because that's the only part that really matters in the long run. You can change the paint job anytime you want because it doesn't actually strain, change the function of how that thing works. But if you don't have the functionality, then you got nothing. 
there's a thousand side pathways we could continue to go down, but we're probably coming pretty close to the end of this. Is there anything else you felt like you really wanted to talk about today or do you feel like it's pretty well covered or what's, this is our last chance to touch on anything we want. Trying to think if there's anything. No, I think, I don't think we've covered everything we could have a conversation about, but I think we've covered a lot of good territory today and it was uh, relatively coherent. I think there's other stuff we could step into uh, deeper in terms of uh, ritual organization structure, but uh, no, I think we're at a, a good point. Yeah, I'm hoping this will be a good introduction to a lot of these ideas for people. And if we're lucky, we'll get to do another one where we go deeper into the details. Yeah, uh, I look forward to that. I appreciate the the rigor and the richness and the heart and the wide range of your complimentary insights. So thanks for being here, Jason. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it.